0: Welcome to Rewrite Radio, the podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, the director of the festival, and I'll be your host. This is the place you can listen back to conversations we've had with writers and readers as we celebrated the written word together for over two decades. In each episode, you'll hear a session that took place at the festival. It might be a reading, an interview, a lecture, panel conversation, or something else entirely. Our sponsors this week are the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship and the Center for Excellence in Preaching at Calvin Theological Seminary. They welcome you to the 30th Annual Calvin Symposium on Worship, January 26-28, 2017. You can join 1,500 participants from 25 countries in learning together about strengthening congregational life and Christian witness. Among the many presenters will be artist and author Makoto Fujimura, a speaker at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing. Visit worship.calvin.edu for more information. Today we'll listen to Makoto Fujimura's talk about Japanese history and literature at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing. The novel Silence by Shushako Endo and Makoto's Faith Journey are the subject of his own book, Silence and Beauty, Hidden Faith Born from Suffering. And Makoto is a consultant on Martin Scorsese's film adaptation of Silence, opening in theaters this Christmas. To help introduce Makoto's session is Josh Larson, the film critic and editor of Think Christian, a digital magazine on faith and culture, as well as co host of Film Spotting. His own book, Movies or Prayers, is due out this summer. Hello. Hi, Josh.
1: Hi, Lisa. Where did we catch you today? Uh, you find me just starting to take a deep breaths after the holiday season, Christmas season rush. Uh, The office is officially closed today, but I'm still wrapping some things up at home. (laughs) But it feels like, you know, a break is ahead. I've got my movie top 10 list is Mm -hmm. well done. And um, this is a very nice time of year when things finally start to quiet.
0: Excellent. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about um, Makoto Fujimura's session at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing, which you uh-huh. attended. And of course, uh, in that session, he talks about his new book, Silence and Beauty, a Hidden Faith Born of Suffering, which talks a lot about Shishako Endo's novel, Silence, um, which is the basis for a movie making a lot of top 10 lists this year. Um, and you were at that session. Tell me uh, what were your thoughts about that, what he had to say and kind of your your interest in that book.
1: Sure. You know, Mako's like the ideal person to guide you through some of these cultural artifacts and the mm-hmm. cultural history, um, just because of his heritage, his interest in art. And so it, it opened up so much for me about just in terms of, um, you know, what Scorsese was going to be tackling with this upcoming mm-hmm. film. I generally, you know, when there's Critics split a couple ways on this when there are adaptations of, of novels. Some of them insist on not reading the novel at all until after you've seen the film, you know, mm-hmm. give the film a first shot. But when it comes to important books, um, you know, I was an English major, and ah, books have always been a huge nice. part of my life. So <laughs> so I want to give the book of the proper deference mm-hmm. and make sure that I've read it. Not too, I'm not so worried about the movie being... Literally faithful in terms of narrative, sure. but um, I just I want to have that experience mm. of reading the novel
0: Yeah, how do you like in this specific instance and without you know, obviously giving away Spoilers for people who have not read the book or watched the movie yet um, can, can you talk a little bit about the interplay between the source material the novel and the film? Do um, you have a sense for Scorsese's um, approach to the, that original material?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I think people have a tendency to to split Scorsese's films into religious or Mm non-religious. Obviously, he did Last Temptation of Christ, Kundun has a spiritual theme, and now Silence. But for me, and and this kind of goes to my my approach to films in general and, and blurring that line between sacred and secular, all of his work has is very much motivated by a religious moral core Mm. and um, you know even something like the Wolf of Wall Street uh, which is (laughs) a a movie of extreme excess uh, to the point where it wore on me a little bit I think Mm. it's still motivated by a a religious core and so this is sort of Scorsese embracing his role as a cinematic priest you know he's he's Mm. just wearing it right out front and there are ways where that's. There are ways where he captures religious feeling um, that are beautiful and also wrenching, just because of this story of these missionaries first facing persecution um, that I don't think another filmmaker could do quite as powerfully. It's also interesting, though, silence is um, the movie. For me, at least in my experience, was much much less mysterious hmm. than the book. Hmm in terms of uh, where it leaves you um, just in terms of the your faith convictions and i'm mm. dancing around spoilers right. a little right. bit here i, I hear you um, <laughs> yes i think i know
0: what mean. I guess i would
1: say both of yeah. both the book and the movie are works are ultimately works of assurance uh, but endo's book is more mysteriously so i was very mm. surprised at what a work of assurance scorsese's movie is and I'm very eager to hear how Christian audiences take that um, and, you know, how other audiences receive that as well. So mm. it's a movie I saw a few weeks ago now. Um, it's, you know, obviously I think it's right around three hours. It's an intense experience, and I'm eager to, you know, still visit it again and, and kind of be able to sit in it a little bit more than just have it right at you in your face. Mm-hmm. Because although it's a quiet film, um, it really works itself up into this into this fervor by the end that uh, gives you gives you a lot of a lot to think
2: about.
0: Yeah. How did you mention that you read Silence, um, the novel, and then kind of circled back to Makoto's book, Silence and Beauty, to help you kind of think through the novel a little bit as a kind of companion. Um, Were Uh there any specific insights or kind of observations that Makoto brought forth um, that you, you remember kind of off the top of your head in his book that kind of Um, helped you process the novel, or that was interesting to you in thinking about Endo's work?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the book, Endo's book, kind of leaves you hungry for for a lot of the context Mm -hmm. in some ways, even though it provides details. And that's what uh, Silence and Beauty really immerses you in, especially the, the art history of Japan that is maybe taking place around the fringes of Endosilence, silence, but is still speaking thematically to what that to what that narrative captures. so there's a lot of there in terms of historical and cultural context, mm-hmm. which I appreciated. Um, also you know as I mentioned, the personal testimony that Mako works into it, I think that's where his response helped me wrap around ha- helped me wrap my head around the faith experience of this central priest
2: mm-hmm.
1: in silence who is faced with extreme persecution and his own doubts, and and ultimately his own, you know, test of faith, which the book climaxes around after he has been captured. So uh, I think Mako brought to light this idea, and and there's a point here I had it marked in my book, too. I'm going to grab it and see. Yeah, here, he says, Endo stands with those sitting in the pews who feel inadequate and uncertain, who doubt whether they can be strong, heroic, and faith-filled, and that, you know, I think is another statement of assurance that was good for me to hear mm-hmm. because in my initial reading of silence, it comes to this devastating climax that, that can leave you feeling a little more lost than that. Does that make yeah. any sense? Oh,
0: absolutely. Yes, having read the book and and being at that moment, I, I, I hear you completely. Yeah, you yeah. know what part I'm talking about. I know about, so. you're talking <laughs> about. Everyone go read the book. You'll know what we're talking about if you don't yeah, already. And, and I, <laughs> yeah, and like, I
1: loved that when I read yes, it. I, yes. I was like, I can't believe yeah. this book is giving us yeah. this moment of awful honesty. Right. And I'll say, I, I again, I assume we're talking about the same scene, but he uh, gets that one he, he he managed to evoke that with um, the right use of sound and camera work and imagery, which is what I was hoping for while I was reading Silence. You know, there, there are other moments I was surprised how literal the film is um, and uses voiceover quite a bit, which makes sense, because a good portion of Silence are these letters that are first-person narrated. Uh, but I'm always more looking for movies to do things, without words yeah with they a different, don't have it's a different to medium
0: yeah exactly exactly
1: right. mm-hmm. and um and he and that is very much in play in that climactic scene and, and in other parts of the movie too but very much there mm-hmm. where i think it's the most important wonderful
0: well thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us about makoto's book silence and beauty and also about the film uh, scorsese's film silence um sure. yeah we really appreciate it thank you And now, here's Makoto Fujimura on Silence and Beauty at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing. A note to listeners, Makoto references projected slides of his work during his talk. You can see much of his work on his website at makotofujimura.com. Thank you,
3: thank you. We could go ahead and try the slide uh, to make sure it's working as I, as I begin uh, this discussion on Endo's work, Silence. and um, I brought with me, uh, I believe this is the second edition, uh, the Japanese uh, version, uh, the original version of Endo's book. Shusaki Endo wrote this book, Silence, in, uh, came out in 1966 in Japan. It was translated uh, some years later into English. And by the time I was an undergraduate student at a place called Bucknell University uh, in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, uh, people were talking about this book. And um, at the time, um, as, as someone biculturally uh, raised, I was born in Boston. Um, my father is a scientist, and um, I was born uh, as he was doing his post work with, uh, on generative theory, grammar theory with Noam Chomsky. And uh, I, my father uh, became famous for bringing uh, generative grammar theory into Japan. Um, so um, my previous book, Culture Care, talks about generativity, and so you, you know where this language came from, and it's literally in my DNA, uh, embedded. And I think about my father, uh, who is now 89, uh, retired, and uh, slowed down quite a bit, but um, his generation and Endo's generation, uh, they're, they're say of the same generation, and there's quite a bit of overlap Uh, Both experienced uh, trauma of of the war uh, as a teenager. Um, Both um, felt orphaned uh, by... um, My father lost his mother, uh, my grandmother, in in the war. Um, And Endo, uh, who grew up part of his life in Manchuria, ended up uh, because his uh, parents got divorced and uh, his mother uh, brought him and his brother to Kobe where uh, it was his aunt that uh, brought his mother, Endo's mother, to church, uh, Catholic church in Kobe. Uh, His mother and uh, Shusak Endo and his brother were baptized. he talks about this experience being uh, like um, entering this faith, like wearing a Western clothes. <laughs> um, it, it didn't really suit him, but he knew that this is what he was supposed to do. And um, so he grew up with this very ambiguous uh, relationship with, with the church. But by the time he was a teenager, he uh, thought about becoming a priest. <laughs> So there was, there was much about Endo's life that um, uh, with this reality of faith hovering around him constantly. I want to begin just showing images from my studio. This is an upcoming exhibit of Silence and Beauty, and this is also coupled with book release, and, uh, but as I was writing this book, I was also painting, and uh, many of the images, this is the image that is seven feet by uh, 11 feet long, so it's a large image that will be featured in my New York show, upcoming New York show, in May. Um, the, the book reading will be on May 5th. It's at a, this beautiful uh, gallery called Waterfall Mansion on Upper East Side, and, and so if you're a New Yorker here by some reason, uh, please, please join us. Uh, it's up until uh, the, end, uh, the end of May, beginning of June, and uh, I think they're open to the public um, on every Saturdays or by appointment. So I paint and I write. I've always done that uh, since uh, my undergraduate days or even maybe before. Um, the two seems to be uh, overlapping activities, at least, if not if not part of the whole. And uh, somebody um, earlier, when I was presenting on T.S. Eliot, asked me, so how does imagery work with writing um, or reading words? And I said, to a Japanese, it's the same thing. Because you are looking at um, Chinese Pictographs or kanjis, you see two here, um, that are highly visual. So to learn to read in Japanese, it's to learn this visual language. And um, so, in Japanese and many Eastern cultures, um, writing and painting are really um, are the same uh, training, same same path. And, and so, it. it it wasn't um, an unusual thing for me to be painting while writing a book, um, but it turned out to be um, a very specific uh, journey of journeying with Endo, Silence, and now with uh, Martin Scorsese, whose film, uh, Silence, is coming out at hopefully at the end of the year, and um, I'll tell you more about that in a minute. Materials I use for Nihonga. Um, I, I, I always, when I speak, um, I want to invite people into my studio, and so um, I begin by explaining what I do in the studio. And these are pulverized minerals: malachite, uh, azurite, uh, and uh, you see uh, cinnabar there as well, and Japanese hide glue, and gold, and and um, brushes that are particularly. Um, made for carrying these pulverized minerals onto the surface uh, surface of my my work is refractive. there are many layers um, many times over sixty layers of uh, uh, under layer goes on before I, I begin and um, and it 's all done with organic materials, natural materials um, and I particularly focus on the technique that has, and, and materials that has been used since uh, 16th and 17th century. So um, even though I have modified to create these large scale paintings, uh, basically the the technique that I use is the same technique that limpa artists used in 17th century um, time when uh, Endo's story of silence takes place. Here I am in my Pasadena studio. Uh, As uh, John noted, I I have been uh, uh, appointed the director of Brem Center. And uh, uh, they gave me a beautiful studio to work in. And my job description is is to paint. (laughs) And I'm told that I get fired if I'm not painting. So I take that seriously and I go in and you see me working on this uh, painting that will be shown in New York. uh, This is a painting that is two seven feet by 11 feet, so seven feet by uh, 22 feet long. It's called Silence and Beauty. And you cannot see the surface of my paintings when I project them. And it is, it is uh, one of those frustrations that I have in pre- public presentations like this, that the very image that you're looking at is not the image that, that the painting is about. Sometimes I do this, do um, they, a close up, and you can kind of see the refractive surface, maybe not, uh, but uh, this is the lim- limitation of digital media. The reason why I Paint the way I do. Um, you might call this a minimalist abstraction, but I think of it as a sensation. Um, I think of this realm of vision um, that you cannot capture in a digital media. So, images are teasers, hopefully, to draw people to the real work, real experience of standing in front of a work and, and add to that frustration, I, I also tell people that it might take you 20 minutes for your eyes to adjust so you can actually see the refractive prismatic colors that are embedded in the surface uh, of my paintings. Now that doesn't do well in marketing. It's not a very easy way to um, promote your images on Twitter, but that's the um, calling that I have, and this calling comes actually from my father's research. Uh, My father, for many years, uh, said that um, in early 1970s, he was at Bell Labs, a famed uh, uh, pure research facility in Murray Hill, New Jersey. Uh, he and his colleagues were working on um, uh, producing um, speech, uh, speech re- reproduction, and, uh, and his colleagues were convinced that in 10 years, this is 1972, in 10 years we'll have a machine that would speak perfectly, that you cannot tell that it's a machine. Right. <laughs> 2016. This is the best we have. My father said for years that human speech, the nuance of human speech, the the fact that it conveys more than information, is far more important to speech reproduction than people gave credit for. You cannot segment and dissect speech and stitch it back uh, uh, as if you were cutting up a frog and stitching it back and hope that it jumps again. You can't do that. Um, he, was, um, uh, he was told that that would be required that they start over. And he said, well, why not start over? And um, slowly he got marginalized. <laughs> um, but he was right. Human speech cannot be reproduced in a way that we segment information and reduce them to bits and Bits. So, and uh, senses, hearing, and vision are so wonderfully, fearfully and wonderfully made. And so part of my journey with both this book, Silence, and my art, Silence and Beauty, has to do with this overlap of the limitations of human um, technology, communication, missions, um, limitations, of just how um, we, even though we try to communicate at the deepest level, how, how much we fail. And I, I think that's a good start to talking about Endo, and this is the uh, barn in Princeton, um, my, my home and my studio where I work out of and um, uh I, I love these flowers that come up uh in, in in may and um this is why i wrote silence and beauty so um i just wanted to show that to you and of course the you know if if you are a writer the day that your book arrives right that's <laughs> There's, there's nothing more joyous, and um, and uh, so I wanted to share this photo with you um, in celebration of the publication of this book. I wanted to also thank Ivy Press um, and also um, Mark Rogers, who insisted I write this book. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about him in a minute, but um, um, Ivy Press um, was great to work with, and and um, I, I was really. Overwhelmed by their effort to translate my aesthetic into this book, um, it's it's not easy and it's it's not cheap, <laughs> um, and uh, so I'm grateful for the team, uh, the design team, and um, starting with the uh, main public uh, main editor Al Shu and uh, all the uh, rest of the great people that I got to work with. Uh, the the book was supposed to be shorter, <laughs> kept on growing. <laughs> and uh, they allowed me to uh, keep going. So um, it turned out to be a book um, that encompasses my journey of faith, um, my journey with Endo, but ultimately it's about communication. It's about that reality that uh, we perhaps cannot capture in digital media, um, but that is critical and also the assumption that we make in communicating what Christians call the gospel into the world. And the gap between us and the world, uh, uh, us and our neighbors, um, is uh, what Endo was ultimately interested in and a conflict that comes when a foreigner comes into uh, um, uh, a certain uh, tribe. Silence, um, How many of you have read this book? OK. I would say about 60 percent. That's good. Okay, so because I, I'm going to assume that you have a, you know at least the plot, I, I, I hope I don't spoil the experience for you um, by, by, by reading from uh, some of the passages, uh, because I say right in the beginning that uh, You know, this journey with Endo, um, it's actually important that you know what happens in the story. So uh, if you don't want to hear what happens in the story, you may not want to be here. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But if you're going to read Silence, please, please, please read it to the end. By the end, I mean the appendix. Do not miss the appendix. In the Japanese version, there is no designation called appendix. Um, It should should not be there. And it's really important that you follow uh, Endo to the end. Um, I write in the acknowledgments this. Following Endo's trails is like going into a dark cave a narrow but deep cave in which available oxygen is limited. But the pilgrimage rewards those willing to journey into the darkness to discover the resplendent chambers filled with jewels, with prismatic colors refracting in the dim light, Dr. Graham, this is Gordon Graham of Princeton Seminary, who uh, was so kind to read the very early manuscripts um, and advise me. Dr. Graham told me in commenting on the early manuscript that it is not so much the details of the journey that we need to focus on, but instead the transformation we experience. In retracting, retracing the steps of Endo, I must say that I have been transformed greatly. Such a transformation never comes easily. Many times I felt lost and confused by Endo's complex maps of trauma. But in the end, I'm convinced that Endo guides us toward the jewels of edification and compassion. Through the dark corridors of confusion and despair, as of this writing, I have not seen the finished Martin Scorsese film version, but going from the fine, faithful script, the orchestration of the tight, disciplined unit at the filming in Taipei. I visited the set twice, thanks to the producers. and the knife edged performance of the actors, uh, including Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver, playing Father Garpe, drowning in the sea, uh, Liam Neeson as um, elder priest. I am persuaded that this film will be one for the ages. And I want to particularly th- thank uh, multiple Academy Award winner, Francesca Los Schiavo. She is the set design. Uh, uh, Director, and uh, she was so kind to include me in, in in some of the decisions made in the set. Here's Endo. I love this photo. Um, very uh, um, funny and um, comical face, um, as opposed to the seriousness of. Uh, and the difficulties that he presents in his stories. This is a um, uh, biography of Endo, the, uh, probably the best biography. It's unfortunately only available in Japanese, but written by Muneya Kato, his, his major student, uh, his student who became his assistant, uh, who became his um, collaborator later in, in life. And, uh, And it's interesting that he chose this photo. The disciple saw his master this way. And it's important to to remember this photo as we go through uh, in those books. And here's Martin Scorsese, um, somewhat troubling figure to maybe to uh, uh, some of you, but... um, I, I really believe that through this 25-year journey of silence, he has um, attained something of a transformation, and I think the film is going to show um, what a film master filmmaker can do using this text that have a lifelong um, transformative effect on. Um, him, so I look forward to seeing the film. I start with this image, image of the martyrs of Nagasaki. Martin Scorsese told me there are two things that he wants to do. Um, one is to honor Endo, the other is to honor the, the martyrs of Japan. So let me start by reading um, from this chapter. Uh, speaking about my journey into silence and speaking about Martyrs Hill of Nagasaki. On on a bright morning in December 2002, I had the privilege of standing on a spot called Martyrs Hill in Nagasaki. It overlooks the city's ground zero from a distance of about a mile. That bright morning, I visited the memorial, the bombing of Nagasaki and the museum with friends and took a video piece in the pond at Ground Zero and I later used this in my New York exhibits called Nagasaki Koi. The first thing I sees upon entering the museum is the facade of a church building, white with ashes, perhaps the type of church that many missionaries would have visited. Its windows are skeletons. Their stained glass is melted into beads on the ground. With that fresh in my mind, I then stood in front of 26 figures lined up as a horizontal wing of a bronze cross, marvelously crafted by sculptor Yastake Funakoshi. The cross is outdoors on Martyr's Hill, Nagasaki is on one side, the ocean is on the other. My eyes went almost immediately to the two shortest figures. You can see that in the uh, close, close up there. One slightly higher than the other. The two short crosses belong to St. Ibalaki and St. Anthony, 12-year-old and 13-year-old believers. 26 men and three children were paraded some 480 miles from Kyoto to this hill to be crucified. It was the magistrate's logic that it would embarrass them to be taunted throughout their journey. Some bled as they walked, their ears and noses had been cut off in Kyoto. On a busy road in Kyoto today, right by a hospital, one of the first that was established in Kyoto by Christian missionaries, there is a stone that marks where the march began. The story of their arrival at the destination is one of the most remarkable display of faith. When they arrived at the hill in Nagasaki, crosses were already lined up. As the story goes, one of the two boys said, show me my cross. Then the other echoed, show me mine. I stood there trying to imagine what they experienced, and for a moment their suffering seemed incalculable to me, like a beaded stained glass windows, droplets of a melted church on the ashes of ground zero. These two crosses point to the stoic surrender of the Japanese souls that is reflected in the death of the martyrs. I thought about the chaos and uncertainty of my own ground zero experience in New York City, That this, obviously, was the beginning of a greater trauma that went beyond any of my experiences. Japan entered this era of persecution in the early 17th century. And the history of Japan is, um, the Japanese history books would uh, depict these 250 years as a one event. <laughs> and um, many of the books, um, of course, talk about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and show images if you visit Hiroshima, um, as I'm hoping President Obama will do. In upcoming days, it, it is a um, traumatic experience. But we need to realize today that our trauma of the last century is critical for understanding our trauma of our time. And Endo realized, as he was recuperating from his tuberculosis, and he didn't know how many years he would have uh, left on his journey on this earth. He began to walk around Nagasaki, trying to conceive a story of Nagasaki, story of Iku, a woman who a survivor of the bombings. And he would re- later on write about her. But he then encountered something at the museum, uh, municipal museum. In Nagasaki as he was meandering the grounds this was not the fumier that he saw the stepping blocks but this is the, uh, very similar to the one that he saw the one that he saw had a um, wooden frame around it uh, with footprints embedded on them and i encountered fumier as a graduate student studying Nihonga, as a national scholar studying 17th century art. And as I recount in my book, I had just become a Christian believer, a follower of Christ. And here I was embedded in in the cultural realities of Japan studying 17th century uh, art artifacts and um, I had access to museums, temples, um, shrines, And here I was, a brand new photo of Christ, asking myself, why am I here? And I entered this uh, exhibit of limpa screen, 17th century limpa screen, gorgeous, uh, beautiful display of masterpieces of Japanese past. And then I realized there was this small dark room to the side, and I write this. I entered a darkly lit exhibit room alone. The studio given to me as a national scholar was a few blocks away from the Tokyo National Museum. In between painting layers, I often wandered into the museum, an imposing building with an imposing building with a western facade and a Japanese roof, reflective of the nineteenth century Meiji Restoration period combining the Japanese past with the influences of the West in in what is called the imperial crown style. I was studying at the the Tokyo National Museum's collection of limpa, 17th century, biobu screens, and after spending time in the main hall where these majestic pieces were exhibited, I entered one of the smaller exhibits to one side, The display cases were full of what seemed like tablets laid flat. I read the description and learned that these were from 17th century Japan, collection of fumie, literally stepping blocks. Fumie were created during the 17th century Tokugawa shogunate Christian persecution. They were images of Jesus or Virgin Mary carved on, on wood, cast in bronze. Villagers were asked to line up on the beach and one by one renounce Christianity by stepping on these blocks. Later on, it was the custom of the New Year's celebration with villagers lining up to pay tributes to the temple and for those suspected to step on the fumier. Individuals who refused or even hesitated were arrested and most likely jailed and tortured. I had just come to embrace faith in Christ at the age of 27 after several years of spiritual awakening. Now I faced, literally, the reality of Christian faith in Japan. I had just been baptized in a missionary church in Higashikurume, but this Fumia encounter was my true baptism into being a Christian in Japan. And what haunted me and continues to haunt me to this day, is that all of the Fumier images were worn smooth. The cast or carved images were hardly recognizable due to so many people walking over them. The image of Christ hidden beneath the smooth surface, surface of the Fumier serves as an emblem of Japanese faith to this day. And the worn surface of Fumie also captures Japanese beauty, enduring trauma. Pursuing the aesthetics of Japan, I studied as a national scholar for six and a half years, apprenticing under several masters of Nihonga. After being invited to continue my studies as a master's of fine arts student, I became the first outsider to be invited into the university's doctorate-level lineage program that is literally linked to the 17th century. By the time I encountered the Fumie, I had realized that my path would be quite different from other Nihonga students. While I deeply affirmed Japanese tradition and beauty, I had to assimilate my earlier training in American abstraction and minimalism. Further, I now had to live out my newfound faith in Christ. I began to work in response to Endo's writing and my own encounter with Fumier. My first set of works exhibited at Tamaya Gallery in Tokyo was called Passion Panel Series. The small, square, minimalistic works were simple layers of pulverized pigments layered over and over in distress by rubbing them with sandpaper and other materials. In my doctorate thesis, I created an installation using a series of narrow panels on the floor. To quote Fumie works, I used Nihonga methods, but the delicate surfaces were precariously installed right on the floor. I called the installation the resurrection. And this piece, the second version of it. This is now at the Yokohama Museum, uh, permanent collection there. This is Sotome, uh, Nagasaki. It's only about two miles from Ground Zero, but it's you have to. It takes about an hour <laughs> because you go through this hitchback. Um, Roads uh, to get up the mountain. And apparently, it's where the hidden Christians hid. It was so hard to get to. And this is the place where chusakendo stood after his encounter with Fumier and looked across and imagined missionaries coming in to this harbor. And there is now, on that spot, Shusakendo Museum <laughs> that you can visit, and, uh, which I was able to do, and uh, uh, they were very helpful in research for this book. I want to read you um, a portion of that passage um, about Sotome. Uh, it, it's, it's in one of my favorite chapters in, in, in this book. Um, the, the chapter is called The Redemption of Father Rodriguez. Before Endo named his novel, Silence, he considered another title. His original title that he submitted to the publishers was Hinata no Nioi, which can be translated as the aroma of the sunshine, or the scent of the sunshine. His publisher balked at the title, of course, and suggested instead silence Endo later complained that this revised title had caused readers to misunderstand the main point of the book. He said this, I did not write a book about the silence of God. I wrote a book about the voice of God speaking through suffering and silence. He noted in his later documentary about the writing of silence, The discrepancy between the original title and and silence is worth pondering. The aroma of sunshine is hardly what one would expect of a novel with the accursed theme of violence and torture. The sun rarely appears. The novel is dominated by darkness, rain, and fog. I began to ponder this discrepancy as I walked around Sotome, where Endo first envisioned silence. It was a muggy, sunny day. Just like in Kyoto earlier, it had rained in the morning, inviting small crabs with orange claws to come out to bathe in the sun, climbing onto the concrete banks of the river flowing in from the ocean. Japan is Nippon, which is Sun Pillar, which has been called the land of the rising sun after its flag of Hinomaru, Sun Circle. One can infer that Endo originally planned to refer this, to sunshine in this title in, in order to create a link with a particular, particular psychological reality of Japanese history. He intentionally juxtaposed the image of the sun against the main storyline of darkness, trauma, and the fears that dominated this, his day and, and, the, and the broad arc of Japanese history. As he wrote the tale that would become known as Silence, it is possible, too, that with the title in mind, he was mimicking the master he idolized, Graham Greene. Greene's masterpiece, The Power and the Glory, also has a perplexing title. Endo's British contemporary Greene had a profound effect on Endo, even beyond that of Kawabata or any other Um, Catholic writers of the day. Kawabata is the first Nobel uh, literature winner out of Japan, uh, contemporary of Endo. Green's endorsement of Endo's Hidens, which appears on the cover of almost every translated edition of Endo's books, quote, Endo, to my mind, is one of the finest living novelists, end quote, may have had an impact on the writer's international career more than any other single line of endorsement in literary history. Many years after writing Silence, while traveling in London, Endo ran into Green in an elevator. He recounts later that that encounter and Green's willingness to offer a deeper friendship had an impact on his faith in the providence of God. While working on Silence, Endo reread Green's The Power and the Glory many times. In his notes, he remarked on many overlaps between Green's novel and the narratives he was working on. A Catholic writer in post-war Japan took his inspiration from another Catholic writer in post-war Britain. Green opened the path for an objective, steely, and sinister view through the lens of faith. The protagonist in the power and the glory is a whiskey priest. If you were there at the dedication this morning... Lucy Shaw quoted this whiskey priest. We we miss her uh, today, don't we? She's such a pastoral presence at these gatherings. A whiskey priest, a missionary to Mexico, whose failures are notable and whose faith is weak. There is neither power nor glory in this character. Yet although Endo and Green depict humanity at its worst and faith at its weakest, their more insistent insistent theme is that though such a broken through such a broken lens, the light of God's grace and power is refracted into the world. Green's unnamed padre sees his life and his ministry as utter failure, he writes. The glittering worlds lay there in space like a promise. The world was not the universe. Somewhere Christ might have died. He could not believe that to a watcher there, there this world could shine with such brilliance. It would roll heavily in space under its fog like a burning and abandoned ship. The whole globe was blanketed with his own sin. That the world could at the same time glitter and be blanketed by a fog crystallizes the Padre's experience and the story of silence. In Green's novel, too, there is a voice of stillness, of silence, a language filled with despair and pathos. The priest's sense that the whole globe was blanketed with his own sin captures Endo's sense of his own failures. And cap, um, and captures Father Rodriguez, Endo's character in silence, his pain at the end of silence. But just like the rays of sunshine after a storm, Green's language and Endo's cleanses the scene, clearing the way for grace to operate. Endo so in Green how a Catholic writer could depict the world as blanked, blanketed with its own sin, Endo sets the scenes with a bleak assessment of the world, but beyond the fog, we may begin to depict, detect the aroma of the sunshine and to see the possibility of the golden country of Japan, a country filled with rice paddies, a muddy swamp now resplendent with golden hues of the abundant harvest. What Graham Greene wrote of his whiskey priest could also be said of Endo's Endo's protagonist and even of Endo himself. This is Graham Greene writing. He was a man who was supposed to save souls. It had seemed quite simple once, preaching at benediction, organizing the guilds having coffee with elderly ladies behind barred windows, blessing new houses with a little incense, wearing black gloves. It was as easy as saving money. Now it was a mystery. He was aware of his own desperate inadequacy. These psychological vacillations fascinated Endo, a priest who struggled with his faith, carrying his shame and lostness into another culture, crossing borders to escape with the same safe hatred and resignation possessed facing his own whiskey bottles, yet navigating boldly into foreign lands. Endo himself desired as a teen to become a priest, and such early identification with priesthood is integrated with jarring, sadistic recounting of trauma. Japanese history, Endo wants readers to remember, is a history of such traumas centered on the cultural denial of Christ. This historical fact woven through 250 years of persecution left an indelible impression, creating vacillating ambiguity, and a culture that hides the most valued treasure of the heart. Okay. So um, I spend a lot of um, chapters actually trying to create a context for, uh, to understand this novel, understand 17th century, understanding Endo as, as you heard let uh, me read just now. And s- three figures: uh, one is uh, Yasunari Kawabata, the first Nobel laureate; uh, second is Kenzaburo Owe, the second Nobel laureate in literature out of Japan. Um, I-, I spend a great deal of time uh, uh, comparing with Endo and. Uh, this is not a book on comparative literature, so. <laughs> so we decided at the end to put it in the appendix, a lot of it, <laughs> but they are important. <laughs> so, um, but I also spend um, uh, chapters on uh, tea master Senorikyu, who is a 16th century cultural figure in Japan, seminal to Japanese history, um, and you cannot understand 17th century without the influence of the Q. And what we know as Japanese culture today, Japanese aesthetic, comes directly out of his, his what he did as an artist, uh, artist, what he did as a cultural figure, and what the, he did as a leader um, in a time of feudal wars. So, um, in order to go into the history and, and the uh, value of LICU and my own personal journey, uh, I spent several chapters on this, so I, I will not um, spend a long time uh, reading this, but I, I just want to give you a taste of this. Um, and It's in a chapter called Hidden Faith Revealed. My thesis for the book turned out to be that Japan is a hidden Christ nation. It is not a pagan nation, as Francis Xavier found out in 1520s when he landed in Kagoshima. He immediately noticed that Japanese were different from any other nation that he's visited, that this is a uh, country and culture most assimilated with the gospel, Francis Xavier observed. And for many years because of the difficulties of missionaries in Japan, uh, we, we, we were so challenged by, to uh, spread the gospel in the soil of Japan uh, that we became convinced that this non-Christian nation uh, is so um, alienated from the Christian message that uh, we, we need to reach the reality of the gospel, the history of the gospel, the knowledge of the gospel, And um, so far, we haven't done so well. And so I went back to 17th century and 16th century. In um, in 1560s, Kyoto, uh, the capital of Japan, had 300,000 Christians. (laughs) There was this... Enormous revival after Xavier came in and after all these Franciscan and Jesuits uh, came in. There was this enormous revival in Kyoto. It affected almost everybody, including the warlords, many of the, whom converted to Christianity. And it was the power struggle that ensued and consolidation of Japan that ensued that ousted Christianity, only Christianity. They didn't outlaw religion, they outlawed Christianity. So the imprint, this indelible imprint, just like the fumier, of Christ into culture, it embossed and debossed the culture itself invisibly but powerfully. So I spent half of the book explaining myself <laughs> of that audacious statement that Japan is a hidden Christ. Nation, and this is the beginning of it. And I'll, I'll, I'll read this, and uh, we're going to uh, Q&A. Um, um, maybe I can tease out some of this um, um, as I answer your questions. Hidden faith revealed. San Noriyou, 1522 to 1591, was one of the greatest innovators to come out of Jap- Japanese soil. Liki lived in an era leading up to the Christian persecution. He was born of a merchant in Osaka in the early 16th century. He was given, his given name was Yoshiro Tanaka. He later was named to Riku in a Buddhist rite. He studied the traditional form of tea under several masters in Sakai, Osaka, then at Daitokuji Temple in Kyoto. He had a close relationship with the warlord Hideyoshi, who eventually ordered Rikyu's seppuku demise. He asked Rikyu to commit suicide on the tea room that he designed and ordered the official persecution of Christians to begin. And with the Christian missionaries um, at hand, his, his wife... Oriki, one of his two wives, who was present, actually, when he was forced to end his life at the age of 71, was one of the early converts of Christianity when the capital Kyoto took hold of the Christian message. Many of Rikki's disciples, Oribe, the best-known disciple, and five of his seven disciples were known to be either Christians or advocates of faith. This historical reality is important for those interested in a background of silence, defining the Christ-hidden culture of Japan in a future of how Japan may now be liberated. Liki gave an architectural structure to this refinement of hiddenness. In his design, his own design of his tea rooms, through Rikyu's architecture of tea, the missionaries of 16th century learned of tea. Rikyu's design tea houses were much smaller in size than most. Traditionally, tea was part of a banquet culture in China, and con- consequently, many tea rooms were quite large. The smaller size of Rikyu's tea rooms allowed particular focus on the minute particulars of the movements of hands, subtle gestures of the placement of flowers and often hidden messages behind the choice of utensils or paintings in the room. Riki was first linked with an ostentatiously ornate golden room in Osaka that Hideyoshi desired, but then he began to move toward what he called wabi, simplicity, as he matured in his aesthetics. His most distinct contribution is, is in the creation of Nijiriguchi, a small square entry port designed for the guests to enter the tea house. It's to the side of this. Rikyu's Nijiriguchi was so small that they forced everyone to bow and remove their swords in order to enter the tea house. Rikyu created a space dedicated to repose, communication, and peace. Deep communication can only take place through a path of vulnerability. In in other words, the only way to escape the violent cycle of the age of feudal struggles is to remove one's sword, and in safety, one can communicate truly. Beauty, one might add, is a gift given through this vulnerability. Beauty that integrates virtue, Nature and religion can guide us into wisdom. This is exactly what Rikyu mastered, a phenomenon that overlapped curiously with the influx of Christians and subsequent persecution of them. In considering the future of Japan, it is helpful to look at the past and to Rikyu, who holds the key to a cultural liberation of Japan, one who lived and died in the realm beyond the persecution years, one who created a distinct Japanese view of aesthetics. Rikyu's language of communication and his unique individualism are a primary example of Japan liberated from Fumie culture. He lived toward that independence, a solitary figure in a tumultuous time. It's known that Senno Rikyu presented this black ball, and uh, I'll end with this, um, to the dictator Hideyoshi, knowing that Hideyoshi hated black. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, of course that was the beginning of uh, his demise. Rikyu's black ball is emblematic of the beauty of sacrifice, and this beauty bordering on protest against power is etched, also etched in Endo's work. Just as Rikyu ordered, offered the Hideyoshi a black ball, tea ball, Endo offers a sinister story of the torture's past in silence. Both Rikyu and Endo focused on the hiddenness of true communication. It is remarkable that someone such as Rikyu, an ambassador of peace, reached the pinnacle of influence in the midst of a feudal struggle to survive. It is a testament to Japanese culture that even, or perhaps especially in time of such struggle, the Japanese highly valued beauty, especially in the visual form. Endo confessed in several of his lectures, "I do not know much about tea," which I am learning is a clue that Endo was actually interested in the subject, and was invested in understanding the mystery of what he pretended not to know. Actually, after I wrote this, I found out that uh, one of the major sources of the early um, reports of art of tea um, was done. By Father Rodriguez, Italian priest. Uh, that, um, is, um, no, a Portuguese priest, right, that, that went to Italy to report on, on tea. Though Ricky is not mentioned in silence, his presence is felt throughout. The most important hidden truth of Father Rodriguez's journey in silence, as I've noted, is in the book's appendix. Well, I can go on on, on and on, but uh, why don't um, we have little time left, so why why don't we move into uh, Q&A here? Um, thank you for your attention um, and uh, thank you uh, for Calvin uh Rider festival to um, uh, act as an invite. Yes. The, the book is not even out yet, and you can buy it here, so <laughs> please. Um, and I'll be happy to sign books afterwards at 3. So uh, if you have any question, if you could raise your hand. Uh, uh, Meg is going to give you a microphone, and yeah. Okay, thank you. Um,
1: uh, Silence is, like, such a sensory-rich novel. Yes. Um, I went through and when I first read it, underlined every place he used sound. Yes. And I was startled at the end because basically most of my book was underlined. Yes. But when I was reading it, it did not seem sensory excessive. Yes. And then also you described your artwork as essentialist. Yes. So my question for you is, what are some ways that we can cultivate essentialism as artists and writers in our own work?
3: Oh my goodness, <laughs> what a question. Uh, thank you. Wow, um, I'll be thinking about that for a while. And um, you know, actually, Endo carried a sketchbook around um, with him as he he said, you know, when I am traveling in, um, in to do research, I I know the historical details, the informa- all the information that I need, but I am trying to paint images through my words. And so he literally uh, painted images, and you can um, see these at, at the museum. Um, he was a pretty good painter. <laughs> and, uh, um, but you could see what he was trying to get at was, uh, and I, I, I do spend a chapter talking about uh, the visual language that Endo um, developed. It's, it's a good uh, point, though, to focus on sound. Um, and how, how that is also present. And uh, that's something that, uh, yeah, I need to think about. Um, but the accentiation uh, part may, may be important because as I began to journey with uh, Endo, you know, there's the form of an artwork and, and, and the content, right? This age-old um, tension between content and form. And the idea, I suppose, is to incarnate the content perfectly into the form. Um, And in in Endo's language, the form of his language is highly descriptive, highly analytical, journalistic. Um, It is unlike any other uh, writers of his time. and so he, I think he was very, very important to writers like Haruki Murakami. Um, uh, you know, let, writers that later came, came out uh, in more descriptive ways. And um, in Japanese, uh, it's notoriously difficult to translate. Um, but Endo wrote as if he was writing to the translators. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he wrote this language, and partly because he um, was uh, studied in France, he was one of the first students to study in France after the war. Um, he bought the cheapest ticket possible to travel uh, to uh, Paris, and he ended up at University of Lyon. Uh, he never finished his PhD on French literature. He was very gifted with his uh, linguistically, um, and his mastery of. Uh, French uh, language, allowed him to read uh, um, um, you know, pre-war writers um, um, in French language, and he was to write his PhD thesis. He never finished it because he contracted tuberculosis, ended up in a hospital in Paris in an isolation ward. And I conjecture and speculate in the book that possibly this language of descriptive language came out of that time. He realized that in in a foreign country, in an isolation room, the only way that he can communicate clearly was through medical language, descriptive, you know, um, precise language. And because he um, endeavored to do that, probably most likely while laying in bed, (laughs) thinking about how long is he going to live. how much time does he have? Probably not, not, not long, he thought, at the time. He ended up living until his 70s, but a young writer um, reflecting on the trauma of his age, his own imprisonment in his own body, um, unable to communicate, uh, he began to describe what I would think as uh, this assentiated form of, of uh, descriptive language. Um, and, and so, in, in that sense, he, he is very um, uh, um, an interesting writer to study, um, both in translated form and the original language. Um, because it, you can, he is one of the few Japanese writers that you can do that way. So, thank you for that question. Okay, one more question.
2: Well, hi there. Uh, hi. Forgive me if I missed something because I was a little late coming in. But one thing that I've always noticed in your work is there's a lot of integration of, you know, like gold leaf or flecks of gold, you know, here or there in your paintings. And it's always kind of made me think of like a kintsugi. uh, Yes. The the broken pottery with the gold in the middle.
3: Yeah. And
2: um, that has always been an image for me of the Japanese aesthetic and wabi-sabi and, you know, Mm -hmm. all of that kind of tied together in one image. Yeah. And um, I was kind of curious how much does that, maybe that image or that yeah. play a role in your work and maybe in the process of writing your book because I've yeah. always noticed that Japanese has this, or I mean the Japanese culture has this ephemeral aesthetic yeah. which makes it more timeless than, you know, whenever we try and make things that are eternal. Yeah, So thank
3: you. No, absolutely, Kintsugi is uh, what, um, Actually, it came out of Rikyu's time, you know, and uh, um, he, I believe it was Oribe or one of his disciples that broke the master's teapot by accident. And the master, you know, he was petrified, and uh, he, he went to the master and he said, I broke your favorite teapot. Tea bowl, and the master said, "It's okay. I will make something better." You know, and he, the student thought he was going to make literally make something new. And the next time he saw the bowl, it was um, it was glued, you know, glued together with gold. So kintsugi literally means stitching with gold. And, um, and he served tea in this, now, new bowl, <laughs> fixed with gold, um, and said, see, it's now better. Um, I Probably not a real story, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, Japanese tradition has it, that uh, when you break something, it's a beginning of something new, um, and it's an opportunity to not only recreate, but to acknowledge the brokenness, right? Uh, but that is in brokenness. There is beauty, and I, 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 sorry, I ran out of time to share about what I do in the book about the uh, bro- broken lantern that is that is in Daitokuji Temple, uh, which is a remarkable example of what brokenness can communicate—the uh, hidden power of that to communicate beauty and communicate silence and communicate faith. Um, so I spent a great deal of time um, talking about this, and um, but the old I think Endo would have said, "Why fix it? <laughs> leave it broken, <laughs> and it's leave it useless." Um, when I was, um, I'll finish with the story. I was, um, I wrote this. Series of essays called Refractions. I was traveling around the country, advocating for for the arts as a National Council member, um, waiting for planes to arrive, and I I I, I wrote this book literally traveling, and there are, when you read Refractions, you see it's like a compressed kind of a uh, statement. Then you can you can see me kind of going, getting tired, and and then, you know, and then coming back, and then you know, but. Um, and the whole premise is a metaphor of refraction, of broken prismatic um, minerals. You know, In order to use the minerals, you have to break it. You have to destroy the beautiful rock in order to create the layers of prismatic refractive surface. To create beauty, you have to go through the destructive process and And somebody wrote to me a beautiful letter, um, a very sincere letter saying that I have struggled as, uh, as a follower of Christ because I have not been able to mirror God's light into the world as I've been discipled to do. My mirror is shattered, completely broken. But when I read your book, I saw the possibility that perhaps even through brokenness, that God can refract his light through me. And I've never forgotten that. And I think that is the way Endo would have um, talked about, not as directly as I have done <laughs> just now, um, uh, but, but that will be the essence of um, Endo's character, his writings, and his life. So thank you very much.
0: Special thanks to Makoto Fujimura. You can follow him on Twitter at IamFujimura. Thanks also to Josh Larson. You can read his work at thinkchristian.net. Rewrite Radio is recorded at the Festival of Faith and Writing on the campus of Calvin College and produced by the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. Our team includes Sarah Bass, John Brown, Sadie Berger, Donald Hettinga, Lou Klatt, Scott Jose, Jennifer Holberg, Bob Hudson, Otica Captime, Carolyn Meiskins, Deb Reinstra, Sarah Ternage, Debbie Visser and Janes Wart. You can learn more about the Festival of Faith and Writing at festival.calvin.edu. And if you're into the social media, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what we're doing here on Rewrite Radio, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show, and we are so grateful. Also, we've got 26 years of festival recordings to explore here on Rewrite Radio. And if you've been at some of these festivals and have a favorite session or two that you're especially excited to hear on this podcast, just shoot me an email at ffw at calvin.edu and tell me about them. Just put Rewrite Radio in the subject line. Thanks for listening to Rewrite Radio. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, back soon with more from the Festival of Faith and Writing,